0: Uh, Let's pray, and then we'll jump into the sermon today. Father, Lord, we just praise you, glorify your name. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us here together to worship you, to honor you, and Lord, to hear from your word and to grow in our faith. So, Spirit, I pray that you would be speaking to us through your word, that you'd guide us into your truth, and Lord, form us more into the image of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, our campaign that we started a couple weeks ago is called The Table. When we talk about the table in the Christian tradition, we often refer, are referring to communion. Uh, we're coming together to share communion together, to remember Christ, to celebrate the Lord's Supper, as we talked about last week. And that's at the heart of our faith, the saving, redemptive work of Jesus dying on the cross for us. At the table, we're going to find, as we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 in a couple of weeks here, we'll find that uh, the table is what unifies us. It's the symbol of unity in the church. Uh, every group you're a part of has something that kind of unites that group and brings that group together, whether it's a book club, uh, <laughs> a sports team, <laughs> <or> <laughs> sporting events. If you're a fan of a certain game, you, you have that like camaraderie around that team or that game, et cetera. We have something that unites us. For us in the church, it's, it's Jesus. It's the cross, and it's the way of Jesus, the way that he taught us to live. So this is our unifying factor, and this is what we unite around. If we zoom out even culturally, the table kind of symbolizes a hospitality, inviting people in, a welcoming into one of your most sacred spaces in your home. So the table is this powerful symbol of the Christian life and the Christian faith. So what we're doing in this campaign is just exploring the symbol of table. We've been starting out by talking about communion, what communion means. The last couple of weeks we've been on this, talking about communion. We are remembering Christ's atoning death for our sins. We're remembering our identity in Christ, and through communion our faith is strengthened. Last week I took the whole week to just kind of say it's a celebration where we celebrate communion together as a church. So, this week, we're going to dive into a (laughs) not-so-fun topic, but as we explore in Luke chapter 22 at the Last Supper, which is where Jesus is instituting the the Lord's Supper and communion to be celebrated as believers for all time, when he institutes this, there's this theme kind of hanging over that text and that event. Remember, we've been saying this is the, the Passover meal that Jesus has been longing for and waiting for with his disciples. This is they're celebrating together. And this is one of the most intimate scenes in all of the Gospels. John, he takes all chapters 13 through 17 to kind of document this scene and the words that they share together and the time that they share together. Jesus' prayer for his disciples even. So this is one of these intimate scenes, and yet... A cloud hanging over this is this theme of betrayal, of what Judas is about to do. So in the midst of this intimate scene, there's there's this cloud that's just kind of hanging over their meal together. And Luke doesn't shy away from it. In fact, he opens the whole section with it. We kicked the can down the road a couple of weeks so that we could talk about communion first and not just, like, jump into, hey, betrayal. (laughs) Kind of like what Luke does here. But we're going to talk about it. And then next week we'll talk about unity. So, hey. (laughs) Or no, next week's service. We'll talk about unity in a couple weeks. So when we read in Luke chapter 22, he, he kicks off this whole section on the Last Supper with this. Now, the festival of unleavened bread, called the Passover, was approaching. We've talked about that at length. So if you're not familiar with the Festival of Unleavened Bread or the Passover, you can go and look at the previous devotionals of the last two weeks, or uh, listen to the sermons from the last couple of weeks, and I'll explain what that is. Passover was approaching, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Okay, so here we see this opposition theme is kind of is drawing to a cl- conclusion where Jesus, throughout his ministry, has been in opposition with the Pharisees, the chief priests, the teachers of the law. They've been looking for a way to arrest him and get rid of him. But Jesus is very popular, so the people uh, tend to like him, and when he's teaching in the temple, there's lots of people around him, and they love him. And so they can't just go and arrest him in front of everybody because they're afraid of what's going to happen, that there's going to be a riot, people are going to get upset, and you can't have an uprising. And that's exactly what the, the Jews feared and the Romans feared. So it's one of the reasons that Pilate actually had Jesus killed, was he was afraid of an uprising taking place. And he, he had Caesar breathing down his neck and like, hey, you got to get things under control there in Jerusalem and Israel. There were a lot, of, uh, a lot of riots, a lot of uprisings that happened in the nation of Israel while they were under Roman rule. And so Pilate when he decides to have Jesus crucified, it's just to appease the people so that they don't riot, essentially. Kind of something similar is happening here. They're like, we, the, the Jewish people know they don't want Pilate coming down on them. So they're like, hey, when we arrest Jesus, we've got to do this in secret because if something breaks out, they're going to come and get us, and they're going to put an end to this really quickly and brutally. So they're looking for a way to arrest him secretly, and this is why they need someone in, Je- in Jesus' inner circle— to give them his schedule so that they know where he is and when he is not with the crowds. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. One of the themes of Luke's account of the Passion Week and these last days of Jesus uh, leading up into the cross is he emphasizes the spiritual reality of what's going on beneath the surface. So here, the other gospel writers don't mention this. But he's talking about, he says, Satan enters Judas. So, in a sense, Satan is influencing Judas now. And he's, he's, he's lying to him. He's influencing him to do the things that he's about to do. And Judas went to the chief. There's, there's more on that later. So, there's the negative side of what Satan's doing, and then we're going to see the positive side. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. So again, this is why they needed Judas. They needed to find a time when Jesus was isolated and alone from the rest of the crowd so that there wouldn't be this big uprising. When we read through the gospels, we often ask ourselves the question: like, why, why would Judas do this? Like, what led him to do this? So Luke gives us part of the answer, right? That Satan had entered him and Satan was influencing him to do this. Uh, some, in, in other places, the gospel writers mentioned that Judas was keeper of the money for the disciples and their group. So he was greedy in some sense, they mention So maybe he was just found an opportunity to earn some money, and he took it. Uh, it's also been suggested, and I find this quite intriguing, actually, that Judas was from a place called Iscariot, which Luke mentions here. And that was a, a, a location known for zealotry. So there were a lot of zealots who lived there. The zealots wanted to overthrow the Romans like yesterday, and they were ready to go, for, go to war for it, and they had on multiple occasions. So it's been suggested that perhaps Judas was trying to give Jesus the push. He's like, okay, he just needs a nudge to like raise the army and get the Romans out of here and reestablish the independent kingdom of Israel. And so he thinks he's kind of giving Jesus this little nudge here by doing this. I think that kind of makes sense of of ensuing events in the story as it pertains to Judas. So he's thinking, hey, I've seen Jesus like turn, I've seen Jesus like calm the storm. I've seen Jesus like multiply food. Maybe he can multiply troops. So like, let's get him, let's get him going. And then once he needs to, once he's desperate, the war is going to start and Jesus is going to take over. I don't know. We don't know for sure, but Something's going on here. Judas is influenced by Satan, yet Judas is still being held personally responsible. So we're going to fast forward a few verses here to the Last Supper. We read the interim section the last couple of weeks. uh, But here in verse 21, we read, But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine at the table. This is Jesus talking. He's talking about the betrayal of Judas here. So Jesus knows. Jesus knows that Judas is going to betray him. And again, I find it interesting in this theme, Jesus knows that Judas is going to betray him, but he doesn't really do anything to prevent it, right? So Jesus knows Judas is going to leave, and yet he still goes to the same place in the Garden of Gethsemane where he went to often to pray and to be alone. If this were a movie, Jesus would know this. He would, like, I don't know, like give Peter the Mission Impossible, like Jesus' mask, and, like, he would get out, and then they'd think, oh, Peter's Jesus. They'd arrest Jesus and be like, whoa, he totally thwarted his plan, right? Like, that's a little crazy. But <laughs> Jesus does nothing to thwart Judas' plan, even though he knows it. And, again, because Jesus is so committed to doing the will of God. Verse 22, the Son of Man will go as it has been decreed. Okay, so here we're seeing, like, and then this next line even. But woe to that man who betrays him. So we see Judas is personally responsible. Satan is influencing Judas. And yet, this is all a part of the plan and the will of God in some capacity. So, if you think about this for too long, it'll just make your head hurt. So, all of those things are, are happening, all of those things are in play here. And what Jesus is communicating to his disciples here is hey, guys, these next few days, like, it's going to look bad. But don't worry, I know it's coming and God is still in control, and God is still sovereign. And that's a message that we can cling to. Like, that's a message that we can hold on to in the midst of this, that even when things are dark and even when things look bad, when it seems to be going from bad to worse and worse and worse, God is still sovereign, God is still in control, and he is still good. <clears throat> they began to question among themselves, which of them it might be who would do this. <laughs> so they don't know. Offhand, Judas had covered his tracks. he had kept a pretty good secret. In John's gospel, he documents that Peter, like, leans over to John and asks him to ask Jesus who it is, and he does, and Jesus confirms to him that it was Judas. But that seems to be like a private conversation because the rest of the 12 don't know. And they break into this conversation actually next. And I'm like, who might it be? as it says here. And then they end up talking about who's the greatest among them. I <laughs> just don't know why. I don't know why they led to that conversation. Maybe they're trying to eliminate possible suspects by starting with who's the best. <sighs> Ugh, it's just awful. Jesus kind of nips that in the bud right away, <laughs> which we'll talk about next week. But I love this. Like this, We often forget that like there wasn't... They didn't all have their phones out and were live streaming this on Facebook, right? Like, these guys wrote this years later to other people who weren't there. Okay, so there's a lot of opportunity to, like, make myself look good. (laughs) We're gonna make ourselves look really great in this, but they don't. They explain reality, it explains the way it really went and it speaks deeply to human nature, that even at the table, this symbol of intimacy, this symbol of fellowship and welcome and community, the the first Lord's Supper that unites the 12 disciples together, even in the midst of that, somebody's going to betray him. So the 12 is close. Very close to Jesus. He had lots of people who followed him. Twelve were some of his closest followers. But that's not where the betrayal stops in this story. It's not only among the twelve where Jesus is betrayed, but it's even among Jesus' three closest disciples where he is going to be denied. Peter, James, and John were Jesus' three closest friends. And if we were to keep reading, even a couple verses later here in verse 31, we see in their conversation Jesus talking to Simon Peter. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, Jesus says. So interestingly, the NIV does a really good job translating this for us. This first verse in verse 31, it is the, the, verb, the word you is plural. Okay? So sift all of you, it says. Some translations will just say sift you. In English, we don't have a second-person plural, so it's really confusing what he's talking about. But what Jesus is saying here is essentially, Simon, Satan is asked to tear apart the disciples, to destroy your unity, to rip you apart as my disciples. Then in verse 32, it's singular. Jesus says, I have prayed for you, Simon, Simon that your faith may not fail. So, what Jesus is saying here is what's about to happen, that this denial, where Peter's going to deny Jesus three times, we know the end of this story, right? He's going to deny him. This denial carries the potential to rip apart the fabric of their unity and to destroy this group of disciples and destroy them so that the early church would be in shambles. And again, Luke notes the spiritual aspect of this. Pay attention to this and keep this keep this in the back of your mind. He notes the spiritual aspect of this. Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. So Jesus, God, they're still in control. They're sovereignly in control of these circumstances. Satan has asked that he might sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon. Jesus praying for him, that this is where the work was done. Jesus praying for Simon. Jesus praying for all of the disciples as we read in John 17. One of the main themes of that prayer in John 17 is the unity of the disciples, that they would be one even as Jesus and the Father are one. It says so in verse 11 of John 17, Jesus prays, "Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one." I also find it interesting here that Jesus doesn't pray that Peter would be spared the difficulty and the pain of the coming hours. He says that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, (laughs) strengthen your brothers. So He doesn't pray that Peter would be insulated from the pain. What we're going to see in a few moments here is it's very painful when Peter denies Jesus three times. Instead, he prays, that when he turned back, when he turns back, he would strengthen the faith of the other disciples. Keep that in mind as we go. <clears throat> Verse thirty-three. But he replied, "Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death." He's <laughs> a little overconfident here at the table, <laughs> and we all know in the courtyard this turns to cowardice. Jesus answered, "I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that." you know me. So then we turn to what actually happens in the ensuing events after Jesus is arrested, and he's in the courtyard. Peter follows him at a distance, and as he comes into the courtyard, he's questioned. This is the third time that he is questioned, and each time he denies him. He says, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. Okay, now, as we're reading through this story, I think what we should be seeing as, disciples, as followers of Jesus is ourselves in this story. Okay, don't just read this as a Peter long ago. We see ourselves in here. And if you're like me, I certainly see myself in this story, at least my former life, especially, where I was a Christian in name only. We call that being a nominal Christian where I would call myself a Christian, but then when any form of social pressure was put on me, to where my Christian faith and admittance of my Christian faith came at some sort of a risk of me even losing some sort of credibility with my friends and care about the way of Jesus at all, I would cave. When I had something to lose for Jesus... I wouldn't follow the way of Jesus. Instead, I'd go my own way. So especially those of us who, see our, uh, who have struggled with nominalism, have struggled to follow the way of Jesus in the midst of social pressures in one way or another. If you have something to lose by following the way of Jesus and confessing Jesus, and you've struggled with this in some capacity, we see ourselves here in Peter. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. (laughs) Gosh. Can you imagine that? You've just denied your friend three times, and you did so to save your own skin, because you're worried that, hey, if they know that I was with Jesus, they might arrest me, and I might be right there next to him. And you think, oh, there's no way he knows. Like, he's way over there. It's really loud in here. He can't hear me. Like, what's what's the problem? And so just in a moment of just, Pressure where, in a moment of pressure where you don't think he can hear you, where nobody else is listening, you don't think anything of it, you just make a quick decision and go with it to save your own skin in self preservation, and then Jesus looks at you. Then <laughs> Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly this hurt. This hurt Peter. Jesus had warned him that you're going to deny me three times, and he still failed. (laughs) He still failed the test. And so he's in this moment of just sorrow, shame. He feels terrible for what he's done. Band, you guys can come and set up. He goes outside, and he weeps bitterly. But remember the words of Jesus I prayed for you, Peter, <laughs> that your faith might not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen the brothers. He doesn't pray that Peter wouldn't go through this, but he prays that through this event, his faith would be strengthened. And when I come back up, we'll read a little bit about how the story ends. But for now, Jesus was denied and betrayed by those who were at the table with him. <laughs> Again, what I love about the Gospels is they don't sugarcoat life. They don't have this pie-in-the-sky mentality of once you're a Christian and you come into community with everybody, then everyone's just going to love each other and it's all going to be good and we're all going to be happy and sing and dance through a field of daisies together. That's not the way life is. That's not the way the church is. And if you've been a part of the church for an extended amount of time, you've likely experienced offenses at the hands of those who are in the church. And what Jesus is telling us here through this is that it shouldn't surprise us. That even the the sinless son of God, God in flesh, was betrayed by some of his closest friends and followers. And so in some way that should inform how we interact with one another in the church. And we'll talk about this when I come up next. For now, would you pray with me? Lord. Jesus, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. Lord, we thank you for your love, for your mercy and your grace, even in the midst of our betrayals. And Lord, we thank you that you were determined to do the will of the Father. That even in knowing the betrayal that awaited you, in knowing that you would be handed over and crucified. Lord, you submitted to the will of the Father and you continued to follow continue to follow the path that he laid out for you. So, Lord Jesus, we thank you. As we come to communion together today, Lord, we're so grateful for you, for your love for us, for your example, for your saving work on the cross that has made us justified before you. And so, Lord, we worship you, and we praise you and give you thanks. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Lord, God, we thank you for your goodness to us, thank you that you are good, Lord, and even in the midst of, of our sinfulness, our failures, or the offenses that we cause one another, Lord, we're united around you in your goodness, And so Jesus, we can look to you and find in you grace, mercy, goodness, holiness, perfection. And so, Lord, we can worship you. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat for a few moments here. All right. A big idea. Jesus was denied and betrayed by those who are at the table with him. Remember, the table symbolizes this intimacy, this unity. This close connection, this community together. And yet, at the table with him, at the Lord's Supper, one betrayed him and one denied him. So when it happens to us, although tragic, it's not justified, okay? And this is where, like, this is where scripture just shines, where it's just so true. It's not justified, it's still wrong, it's tragic, it's evil, it should not be surprising to us that this comes, this happens. Now, before I even get into this, I'm, to be clear, I, this is a big topic. <laughs> I'm not going to say everything on this topic, okay? Um, that would turn into like a course, like a a weekend course, pretty quickly, and it would be pretty dry and pretty boring. And that would be more suited for a counselor to have this conversation with you guys than me. So I'm not going to say everything on every topic. And the challenge, of course, is when I'm talking about things like offenses, I'm using betrayal, denial pretty broadly here, right? We're talking about offenses. We're talking about things from just being disappointed in others. Perhaps somebody didn't show up for you when you needed them, being let down. Uh, perhaps, we're talking about things like maybe a, a word, an insult, or somebody gave you, or, or a, or a look that somebody gave you on the way out the door. We're talking about anything from that, like a bad look to something like abuse, right, at the hands of a leader of the church or at the hands of somebody else in the church. Okay, so this is a broad spectrum that we're talking about here. And we don't want to... We don't want to trivialize the hurts and the wounds that many of you guys have from folks within the church because they're there and they're deep. And I just want to acknowledge that we know, that I know that those wounds hurt. They hurt deeply. Just like Jesus had to be hurt by Peter and Judas' betrayal, and just like Peter went out and wept bitterly when he knew that he had failed and betrayed Jesus, these hurt. And they're real. And it's okay to experience these hurts and these pains as real. Because they do. And this is a big topic that it's really trendy, it's really cool now for folks who have been hurt by the church in some capacity to just tweet about it <laughs> and and spread that information everywhere. Which I'm going to this isn't groundbreaking psychology or science. Twitter is not the place for healing, okay? I think it's safe to say Twitter is not the place for healing. Instead, it's done in coming to Christ, finding Christ, finding the goodness of Christ, abiding in him, in the midst of your hurts and your pains and the things that people have said or done and harmed you within the church, Don't deny them. They're real. Come to Christ. Find the goodness of Christ. Find the mercy, the grace, the compassion, the healing of Christ. And I want to give you hope today to not give up meeting together, as the author of Hebrews tells us, as some are in the habit of doing. The answer is not to find healing in isolation. The answer is to find healing again in the community of faith. And learning how to love one another amidst our betrayals, in the midst of our differences and our sins and our offenses that we cause one another. It's not easy to do. Our natural tendency is when we are offended and when we are harmed to retreat from it, even though we know that that is not what's best for us. And the closer we are in relationship, I should say this as well, our tendency is also then to just not get close after we have been hurt. Because. When people are close to you, they have greater potential to hurt you. That's why walking through a divorce is much more hurtful than it is when a friend from high school stops talking to you. They're very different levels of pain and harm. And when we are close together to, to one another, intimately together at the table of Christ, these betrayals hurt, and they're real. And so I want to encourage us and give us hope through this text today that the answer is not to retreat from Jesus the answer is not to retreat from the community of faith but in those two we find hope for healing and reconciliation to one another because i specifically chose the word when it happens to us not if it happens to us we as followers of Jesus although it will not be this way forever on this side of heaven we are sinful and still struggle with our sinful nature. And so, we will offend each other. We will be offended by somebody else. Again, this doesn't excuse it. It's the result of sin, and it is our our calling as followers of Christ to be more and more like Jesus and to grow into the way of Jesus to where these offenses and these sins happen less often. Yet, they certainly still will. So it doesn't excuse it, but I want us to maintain our hope in this new resurrection life of Jesus that he gives us. Don't lose faith in Christ and the newness of life that he's given you, and don't lose faith in the church. That's kind of my big big picture plug. Because we want to grow as a community into this genuine love that Christ has for us. And the hope of that is Christ working within us in the church. Healing doesn't come through, loneliness, through isolation, unforgiveness, and bitterness. It comes through forgiveness in Christ together as a community. And so... In this text, what I don't want you guys to do is to be looking around at each other in the church like the disciples and saying, who is it, right? Who's going to hurt me next? No, that's not, that's not the point here. That's not what I want you guys to do. Instead, this text, it gives us three, I think, very important things to remember when we experience offenses within the church. And these can give us hope. To maintain community and unity and intimacy with one another, so we don't isolate from each other, but still participate in the family of God. One, Jesus knows. Jesus knows when we. So I think part, of, <laughs> a big part of this for the disciples was in the early church when, when they were, uh, when people betrayed them. First John says. They went out from us, and they were never among us. It like, had to hurt when people left the church and started preaching a false gospel against John, and when Paul, people started preaching against Paul. But when these things happened, it had to hurt, and they had to be wondering in the back of their mind, wait, 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 is this really the new type of community that Jesus is making? Are these the new people that we're supposed to be? And the fact that this happened even to Jesus is a reminder that it's, it's okay, in the midst of this unity and this newness of life that we're experiencing, there's going to be pains, there's going to be sorrows and difficulties along the way. So Jesus knows. And don't overlook how significant this is. Okay, this isn't just like a, a thing people say. This isn't just like a cute thing to like try to put a Band-Aid on a gunshot wound. No, Jesus knows. So when you're praying to Jesus about the pain and the hurts and the harms that you have experienced, you're praying to somebody who knows was betrayed by some of his closest friends. He knows your pain. He's not some God who's just aloof, who's out there, who doesn't really care, and he's up in holiness and just sitting on a cloud completely indifferent to your pain. He knows. He's experienced it. It hurt him. This is often one of the most comforting things for us when we're going through pain and sorrow in general, is just... Knowing or speaking with somebody who has walked through it as well. It may not take all the pain away. They likely can't, right? But just talking to somebody who can empathize with you because they've experienced the same thing and walked through it, perhaps longer than you have, is really refreshing and good for your soul. This is why having a mentor is so important. (laughs) Somebody who has walked through the pain and the suffering that you've experienced and can counsel you on the wisdom that they've learned in the time. And that's why coming to Jesus is so important, because he knows. And second, Jesus is praying for you. Remember, when Jesus prays for Peter, he doesn't pray that he wouldn't experience the pain of this. He prays that his faith would be strengthened. That's a crazy thought, right? And again, it's something that just appeals to reality. It's true. That Jesus may not completely insulate us from all of the pain of community and life around us. Jesus may not be praying for a spiritual hedge of protection around you. (laughs) I promise every time I use hedge of protection, it's kind of tongue-in-cheek, all right? But perhaps he's praying that through these circumstances, your faith will be strengthened. And if you are in Christ, he's praying for you. And the pain and the difficult circumstances that we walk through in community together with one another as we face the betrayals, as we face the offenses of one another, they will strengthen our faith. That's one of the deep mysteries of suffering and pain. There's there's lots, I think the biblical... Worldview gives us some really good reasons for it and gives us the best explanation that's out there for it. And one of those reasons is that through it, our faith is strengthened. We learn things about ourselves that we wouldn't have learned otherwise. And we can come out the other side with a stronger faith, a closer unity with Christ. Because when you talk to people who are going through crisis or going through difficult times, one of the things that they will often say is, I'd never felt closer to God. And so although the offense, the hurt is not good, oftentimes through it, God brings good. God brings you closer to him and God strengthens your faith in the midst of it. And it's so comforting and encouraging to know that if you are in Christ, Jesus is praying for you. That Jesus cares. And he may be praying, not for not for that offense to not happen, not for that hurt to not take place, but your faith to be strengthened and when you turn back you can strengthen the faith of others (laughs) now you become a mentor because you've walked through it and now your faith is strengthened and you have something more to give to others the next jesus forgives our betrayals (laughs) if you're in christ these are two there are two very important implications of this part When we are the ones who betray others in the church, which you have, and you will be, (laughs) if not. So before you go pointing the finger at how everybody else is so awful, remember to reflect on your own heart and your own self first. We find forgiveness in Jesus when we harm others, when we say something offensive, when we do something hurtful. But remember Peter, after he betrayed Jesus, he had this heart of repentance. He experienced godly sorrow. He went out and he wept bitterly. Now he doesn't stay there, but he gets there because <laughs> he's sorrowful for what he did. When we go to Jesus, we can find forgiveness when we repent. And then next, we should also forgive those who have betrayed us, or those who have hurt us, at the center of the gospel and our relationship with God is forgiveness. That we have sinned and God has freely given us forgiveness in Christ Jesus. And so we as Christians, when we reflect on that and we meditate on that and how God has forgiven us, we should always get to, we need to forgive one another. Now forgiveness isn't reconciliation. Forgiveness is a one-way street. Reconciliation is a two-way street. Forgiveness is you releasing the other person of the debt that they owe you. That's forgiveness. You can do that on your own, and you can forgive them. It's way easier said than done. And So if you're struggling to forgive somebody for the offense that they have caused you, I encourage you to pray and ask God to give you the strength, the faith and the strength of faith to forgive them. Because it's not easy. But in Christ and through the Holy Spirit whom he has given us, he can give us the strength of our faith to forgive Because that's the building block of genuine reconciliation. And So, the answer again, when we experience these offenses and these pains, is not to retreat to isolation, to not keep everybody at arm's length so that they can't hurt you. The answer is coming to Christ, finding hope, forgiveness, relationship with Christ, and in the church going through this process of reconciliation, forgiveness, seeking out forgiveness from one another. It's risky business being in community, and being close to one another. It really is, but it's absolutely worth it, and it is the way of Jesus. Now, before we come to the table, I want to read John 21, the end of the story. It's one of my favorite texts in all of Scripture. This is after Jesus has risen from the dead. And this is him walking along the beach with Peter. And John's behind him. It says, When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you, Jesus said. Feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, Take care of my sheep. And the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, Do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, Feed my sheep. Jesus asked Peter three times, Does he love him? to replace the three denials that he said he doesn't know Jesus. And then Jesus reinstitutes him. Remember, he was praying for him that when he turns back, that he would strengthen the faith of the apostles. And he does. He says, Feed my sheep. He's telling him, Feed the church. Now take this faith that has grown in you, that I've prayed for you, and feed the sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. So Peter was likely hung on a cross upside down in Rome. And so Peter would have, a, that means Peter had another opportunity <laughs> where he faced the decision to save his own skin and deny Jesus or this time to maintain his faith, to maintain his unity with Christ and to not deny him and to confess Christ, even when death was hanging over his head. And he did. And so we're left with these words of Jesus, this forgiveness, this grace, this mercy of Jesus, and we come to him with a repentant heart. We find forgiveness. Jesus calls us then to go strengthen the faith of one another as we follow him. And as we follow him, we find mercy, we find goodness, we find hope for this life together that he's called us to. So now we're going to come to the table, and as we come to the table and enjoy this celebration of what unites us and what joins us together, we also remember that there's going to be offenses, that there's going to be hurt at the table. But the goodness of Jesus, the mercy of Jesus is strong enough to maintain our unity, to keep us together as we set our eyes on him and follow him and practice the same mercy and grace that he has given us and we give that towards one another. As we love one another as Christ has loved us. And so, as we hold these elements in your hands, I want you to ask yourself if there's anybody that you need to forgive in the church that has offended you. Ask yourself if there's anybody that you need to reach out to and ask forgiveness of for your actions. And if there is someone or there is something that you need to forgive, don't wait. As soon as we're done with service today, Take those steps, send a text message, call, meet up with somebody for coffee and begin this process of reconciliation. This is at the heart of what God has done for us. And so we as a church need to learn to practice this. Lord, pray as we come to the table that you would heal the wounds of those who have been hurt by others in the church. Jesus, we thank you for your grace, for your forgiveness. Lord, give us a heart of repentance when when we offend others, when we harm and betray one another. And we abandon one another. Lord, would your spirit stir within us to be a united community in you, Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's come to the table. Remember, hold on to the elements and we will pray and partake of them together. Would you pray with me for the bread first? Lord Jesus, we often talk about the physical pain and think of the physical pain that you experienced on the cross in your body. But Lord, Today, we remember the emotional pain. of How when you were betrayed, when you were denied, Lord, how that must have hurt. Lord, we remember that in the incarnation that you were made man, that you experienced the pain that we have all felt. And Lord, you know the pain that we felt. And so, Lord... We thank you for taking those sins and offering us forgiveness in the midst of the pain that we have caused as well. Lord, our sin was placed on you when you died on the cross for us. So Lord, we repent and we ask for your forgiveness. We thank you for the cross in which you give it freely. We remember you as we partake. Let's partake of the bread together. shed for us, to make us holy, to make us a people, Lord, after your own image. And Lord, we confess that so often we fail to live up to your standards. Lord, we thank you that in spite of our failures, in spite of our sin, in you, because of the cross, because of your blood that was shed for us, we have forgiveness of our sins. And so, Lord, we don't trust in our own righteousness to be better, but Lord, we trust in your sacrifice to save us, to make us holy. And to bring us to God. So, Lord, we thank you for your cross that when we fail, we can be reunited with you and drawn back into your presence. So, Lord, we thank you and we praise you and remember you as we partake together. Let's partake of the cup. Let's pray one more time as we close. Lord, we just pray your blessing over us that, God, you would move in our hearts to draw draw us more towards Christ, that you would call us to forgiveness, to repentance, and that, Lord, we would be united as a community in you. Lord, I pray over those who have experienced some serious hurts at the hands of the church. Lord, may they find healing, may they find forgiveness in you, Jesus. And, Lord, I pray that their eyes would be drawn to you as the good author and perfecter of our faith. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. There's prayer still available in the back. If you need prayer, please head back there and pray before, we, before you head out today. Not thank you for being here. And go in the holiness that Christ has brought us.